Welcome to Lovers Forever. Last week, Frank finally won the part he'd longed for of Maggio in From Here to Eternity and was to report to set within 10 days. He was a little late already. He had a show in Montreal booked from February 6th to the 15th, but once he closed that show, he flew not to Los Angeles, but straight to London. He hadn't heard from Ava in a week, and Rini Jordan and Ben Cole wouldn't tell him where she was. She had been in Rome, visiting the brothels with Grace Kelly, but he finally got a hold of her at the Savoy in London. She didn't want to talk to him. She mentioned something vague about a medical problem. That spurred Frank to get on an airplane. He supposed she was referring to the pregnancy, and he was right. Ava was going to have another abortion. In her memoir, Ava says that she knew that Frank was coming to London at some point for a tour of Europe, but she didn't know when. She also implies that she went to the clinic without telling him, but that someone else clearly did, because, quote, as long as I live, I'll never forget waking up after the operation and seeing Frank sitting next to the bed with tears in his eyes, end quote. But a newspaper account from the time has them meeting at Heathrow when he gets there. I think she must have told him. Of course, the truly terrible part, the part she couldn't admit to him, was that it wasn't his. Maybe by this time he'd figured that out. She writes in her memoir regarding the second abortion, I think I was right. I still think I was right. As if she knows people will judge her. You can judge her if you want, I suppose. As for me, I love Ava too much. And I respect her. So I never could. And it's worth reiterating that if news of these operations had come to the surface in 1953, her career would have been gravely damaged. There were risks for her beyond the merely physical. Somehow, Frank and Ava made up and flew to Paris for a few days. But when Sinatra got a cable from Harry Cohn basically asking where the hell he was, Frank took it as a welcome excuse to leave. The marriage was in tatters. While Frank was in America, Ava remained in Europe. She had arranged for an additional film to be made overseas. Studios were incentivized to film overseas to cut production costs. There was also a lucrative loophole in the tax code for Americans residing outside of the U.S. for at least 18 months. So this next film, after Magambo, was called Knights of the Round Table, a retelling of the King Arthur legend. Ava would play Guinevere, in the studio in London, and in locations around England and Ireland. In between the end of filming Magambo in the studio in London and starting the new movie, Ava had three weeks off. She went on vacation to Spain. When she was there, she met a matador at a party. He was the most famous matador in Spain, Luis Miguel Dominguez. Unlike the pompous Mario Cabre, he was laid back and easygoing. He spoke no English, but Ava sort of made a mental note of him. And then she went back to England. Frank finally started shooting from here to eternity. 
In prior film productions, he had earned the nickname One Take Charlie because he was easily frustrated with the stop-and-wait cadence of movie making and wanted to only do single takes of everything. But now, Frank believed that the future of his career was riding on this performance, so he gave it all he had. He obeyed his director, Fred Zinneman, and came to rely on his co-star, Montgomery Clift. Monty was troubled in his own way. He was an alcoholic and closeted homosexual. And the men had a great affinity for each other because each sensed the other's woundedness bubbling under the surface. Plus, they were both brilliant artists and they both had incredibly intense blue eyes. Monty coached Frank throughout his performance, giving him meticulous notes. And Frank followed them. Like I've said before, Frank could be a difficult person to work with, but he always respected great talent. And Clift was one of the greatest actors of his generation, so Frank set aside his need to be the alpha male. After hours, Frank and Monty would join the book's author, James Jones, for heroic drinking bouts. Jones was a former boxer and combat veteran, and the three men would get drunk and then, in Jones's words, weave outside into the night and all sit down on the curb next to a lamppost. It became our lamppost, and we'd mumble more nonsense to each other. We felt very close. Sinatra also befriended Burt Lancaster, who got so used to carrying the drunk Sinatra and Clift up to their rooms each night and putting them to bed that Sinatra sent him telegrams for his birthday that said, Happy birthday, Mom. But even if they were drinking a lot after hours, Monty and Frank were always sober while on the clock. The result of their professional collaboration was that Frank ascended to new heights as an actor. Ava's next project would offer her none of the creative enjoyment of Mogambo, which, I might add, is worth watching. There are parts of it that haven't aged well, such as Clark Gable's character trapping a puma in the film's opening minutes. But Ava walks away with the thing. She's charming and beautiful and funny, and you feel genuinely bad for her when Gable passes her over for Grace Kelly. It's so obvious that Honey Bear, yes, that is the character's nickname, is the woman that Vic is meant to be with but she doesn't let her jealousy make her caddy to Grace Kelly. For her part, Grace Kelly gives hints of the erotic power and hidden depth that would come to define her later roles, but for the most part, she's kind of wooden and does a not-that-convincing English accent. Knights of the Round Table, on the other hand, was a dog. Ava literally told a reporter it stinks while she was working on it. Her part in it was an afterthought anyway, so she didn't put effort into it like she had a Mogambo. She was enjoying living in London, where the press didn't hound her as much. She could go out to places without being mobbed. Back in America, Frank had had yet another crucial development in his career, this time in music. It's been a while since I've even talked about Frank Sinatra in the recording studio. I think last time we touched on it was episode 5. That's because he simply wasn't recording things. His record label Columbia had dropped him. It's confusing, but Columbia the record label and Columbia the film studio are not the same. Now he had miraculously signed a seven-year deal with Capitol Records. 
Capital was a hot label at that time, with stars like Nat King Cole. Sinatra's erstwhile arranger, Axel Stordahl, had moved over to Capitol and was telling everyone he could that Sinatra was singing good again. This was apparently enough impetus for Alan Livingston, vice president in charge of creative operations, to sign him. And so, on March 13, 1953, Livingston met Frank at a restaurant called Lucy's, and Frank signed the contract. There was a clause in it that they could drop him within the first year. The contract was the kind typically offered to newcomers. The advance he received was less than $1,000. But Frank had a recording studio again. What's really significant about signing the Capitol is that it brought Frank Sinatra to Nelson Riddle. You simply cannot overstate the importance of Nelson Riddle and Frank's musical career. Riddle was an arranger, and arrangements used to be very important in the big band and swing music of the mid-century, which was trying to emulate the improvisations of jazz. Above all, Riddle had a keen understanding of dynamics. He understood how to make the different sections of the orchestra play off each other to create a feeling of movement. In his work with Sinatra, many songs have an iambic, heartbeat-like rhythm to them. These songs have swagger, in stark contrast to Sinatra's work in the 40s with the ranger Axel Stordahl. Frank nicknamed Stordahl Sibelius. Their songs together consist of a lot of tastefully deployed strings and the occasional twinkling of a piano. There were up-tempo numbers mixed in too, but Frank's sound in the 1940s was pretty sedate. He was also singing a lot of ballads, so that would make sense. Nelson Riddle truly made Sinatra swing. In doing so, he brought Frank into the zeitgeist of the early 50s. After Frank did his first recording session with Nelson Riddle, he said, I'm back, baby, I'm back. The song that made him so exuberantly self-confident is called I've Got the World on a String. Even though Riddle arranged this piece, it appeared on a record called Frank Sinatra with Billy May and his orchestra. It's too complicated to explain why. I would encourage you to listen to this song because it really is quite different from anything Frank had done before. He seems bursting with optimism, bouncing along with the rhythm in a totally self-assured way. He was indeed back, but it would be a while before the rest of the world caught on. In May of 1953, Frank came to London. Ava met him at Heathrow, and then they went to her Regent's Flat Park and stayed in bed for three days. After that, they embarked on his European tour, which he promised Ava would be like a second honeymoon. Only it was a total disaster, apart from the very amorous beginning. Ava was still the bigger star. In Naples, concert organizers had put Ava on the bill even though she wasn't performing. A spotlight found her in the crowd and people threw seat cushions at Frank Sinatra. They wanted to see her, not him. Frank fled the stage, and Ava left too. The crowd nearly rioted. His shows in Malmo and Helsingborg were met with boos. In Stockholm on June 1st, Frank claimed he collapsed from exhaustion. What probably happened is that he didn't want to go on with the show. Ava was due to return to England by this point to continue shooting Nights of the Roundtable. She would earn $17,000 a week. 
Frank hadn't even been paid for some of these shows. Their second honeymoon was over. But while this fiasco unfolded overseas, one of Frank's new singles, I'm Walking Behind You, hit number seven on the Billboard chart. It was his first hit song in a long time. Eddie Fisher's version of the same song was at number one. I've Got the World on a String debuted at number 14 and only stayed there for two weeks. 1953 would not be Sinatra's year in terms of music, but he was laying the groundwork for a comeback. He stayed in England for a while. His manager had miraculously come up with a tour of the United Kingdom. They had a soft spot for him in England, and the country was feeling jubilant because they'd just crowned a new queen. He had several shows in London, and he also traveled to Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, and Bristol. Ava was busy filming her movie, so she couldn't go with him. Not all the shows were sold out, but the crowd gave him an enthusiastic welcome, and he was an excellent voice. Then, on August 5th, From Here to Eternity opened in New York. Harry Cohn declared there would be no publicity, except for a full-page ad in the Times, which he signed as President of Columbia, urging people to see it. There was no premiere, no bevy of stars and fancy clothes. This was a weird decision for a lot of reasons. The Capitol Theater, like many others, had no air conditioning, and back then, major movies generally weren't released in the summer for that reason. Cohn was sure the movie would be the biggest hit ever for Columbia. So why did he release it in such an inauspicious way? It didn't matter. The gambit worked. At 9pm Los Angeles time on August 5th, Fred Zinneman got a call from, of all people, Marlena Dietrich. The fabled star was in New York and said that the Capitol Theater was full of people, People were still lined up around the block, and there was an extra showing starting at 1 a.m. Zinneman wondered how that could be, since there had been no publicity. They smell it, Dietrich told him. William Morris sent Frank a cable telling him the good news. Ava was happy for him. She was also annoyed at him, because his arrogance had soared. The Sinatras paid a visit to the Earl Wilsons, who happened to be in London. Earl Wilson was one of Frank's few long-standing allies in the press. Wilson recalled that Frank was, quote, torn about what attitude to take about all the build-up. Should he be humble, or as one of his realist friends said, should he start getting that old shitty feeling toward everybody who'd helped him? Including the woman who had done everything she could to get him this role? I'm sure I don't have to tell you that the answer is yes sudden upset in the power dynamic led to a series of terrifically crazy fights. They threw furniture and crockery at each other one night and Ava's landlord threatened to evict them. On August 12th, they were out to eat at the Ambassador Hotel. Frank asked Ava for the time. She said, How do I know? I'll be seeing you, he said. And then he left her there, packed his bags, and flew home alone. His welcome at Idlewild was that of a conquering hero. Everyone was congratulating him on his performance as Maggio, even the cops. 
Suddenly he was getting dozens of phone calls. NBC reached out. They wanted an exclusive contract for radio and television. The 500 Club in Atlantic City wanted Frank to come perform ASAP. So did the Riviera in Fort Lee. Milton Berle was offering him $6,000 for a single appearance on his TV show. Fox called. Would Frank be interested in a musical with Marilyn Monroe? It would be called The Girl in the Pink Tights. Or maybe he would star in Elia Kazan's new picture. Some blue-collar drama set on the waterfront of his hometown, Hoboken. Frank was thrilled, but he was also reluctant to believe this was all happening. He did go down to Atlantic City for an engagement at the 500 Club. They had to add extra shows at 2 a.m. to accommodate the crowds. From here to eternity was breaking records in New York and Chicago, the only two cities where the film had opened. Harry Cohn, cleverly, was holding out on the rest of the country, creating anticipation. And through it all, Frank was still calling Ava on the phone every day. Even though he was back to looking at the Copa girls like they were options on a menu, Ava genuinely wanted to see him successful. If she hadn't, she wouldn't have campaigned for him to the cones or tried to get Metro to make a movie with the two of them in it. He would speak to Ava with pride about his comeback, but when he turned cocky or arrogant or nasty, which was always, she'd get bored with him. So then he'd lash out in a futile attempt to remind her who was in charge. He might say something like, The hell with St. Louis woman. I'd rather work with that cute little blonde, Marilyn Monroe. And then Ava would hang up on him. And yet, somehow, she agreed to come home and see him once her movie wrapped. Clark Gable, who had also stayed in London after Macambo finished up, came to see her for a farewell drink. Ava, honey, you do know what you're doing, don't you? You're packing up and throwing away $150,000 in those suitcases. He was referring to the tax breaks she would lose unless she stayed overseas for 18 months. Ava didn't care. She wanted to see her husband. But not badly enough to go right away. She added a stopover in Madrid. She loved Spain, and she had a new friend there, Luis Miguel Dominguez. He'd learned some English since last time they met. Frank read about her Spanish vacation just like everyone else did, and he interpreted it as her standing him up, possibly for another man. She was scheduled to arrive in America on Labor Day. Frank was still performing at the 500 Club. He was not there to meet her at the airport. But the reporters were, and they asked if she planned to see Frank in Atlantic City. Ava adjusted her sunglasses. She was hungover and exhausted from the flight and angry at Frank for not showing up. Not today. I have no definite plans. She took a suite at the Hampshire house. The next day, Frank checked into the Waldorf. They were giving each other the silent treatment from like 12 blocks away. Ava told a reporter, I hope to see Frank before I leave next week. That's what I came home for. She didn't say why she had, up to that point, refused to call him or where she intended to go after said week was over. 
Frank told Hedda Hopper, I saw a picture of Ava at the airport, and that's the first inkling I had that she was in town. I don't understand it. We'd had no trouble. I can't make a statement because I don't know what she's planning. It's a crying shame because everything was going so well with us. This is obviously a lie. Frank knew when she was coming to town. She told him about it. They had made a plan. But here they were, arguing through reporters rather than calling to speak to each other. When Frank debuted at the Riviera to the adoring crowds, Ava went with a friend to a Broadway show. Frank was fronting like he was the happiest he'd been in years, and in a sense he was. But the rift between him and Ava was cutting him up inside. He couldn't dominate or subdue her. He couldn't make demands of her. Ava followed her own whims and nothing else. It was why he had loved her, but it was also why he couldn't hold on to her. They'd been playing these games for years now. And even with Frank on the ascendant, would the pattern ever really change? Except when it reached its inevitable conclusion? Dolly Sinatra made a valiant effort. She called Frank, and she could instantly hear how sad he was. So then she called Ava at the Hampshire house. Ava asked her to come over. Dolly said that when she came to visit her daughter-in-law, Ava started crying. Frankie's so upset, said Dolly. It's driving him nuts, you two not speaking. Jesus Christ, you know you two kids love each other, so quit all this fucking shit, for God's sake. And then she strategized, as always. She told Ava to come over for dinner the next night at the Sinatra's place in Weehawken. Then she invited Frank to the same dinner without telling him who would be there. Ava came at 6.30, Frank at 7. They met each other in the hall. Hello, Francis, Ava said. Dolly made them come into the kitchen and had them both taste the gravy. Then they started laughing and talking and then hugging each other and then they started hugging Dolly and everyone was laughing and crying at the same time. After dinner, they drove to Fort Lee for Frank's show. He sang to her as if there was no one else in the room. Everything was forgotten, said Ava of that moment, except pride and love for my old man. The next day, Frank moved out of the Waldorf and into Ava's suite at the Hampshire house. But this reconciliation, just like all the others, didn't last. A few days after making up, Frank promised to be back to the hotel by 2 a.m. and traipsed in with the morning light. Isn't it a little late to be coming home? she asked him. Don't cut the corners too close on me, baby. This is the way my life is going to be from now on. That night, her reserved table at the Riviera was empty, and it sapped Frank of his concentration. The show was ruined. Around this time, Ava confided to close friends that Frank no longer satisfied her in bed. Their sex life had always been the most successful part of the relationship, but if the making up wasn't fun anymore, then the fighting wasn't worth it either. Plus, Frank was still hanging around with the gangsters that Ava despised. He was spotted ringside at the Copa with Frank Costello and some anonymous but beautiful young woman. On October 1st, they attended the premiere of Magambo at Radio City Music Hall. 
MGM publicist Howard Strickling had persuaded Ava to take her husband to the premiere's PR. They managed to be photographed smiling together, and the reviews from the movie were full of praise for Ava's performance. Just as Frank's performance had garnered Oscar buzz, so did Ava's right away. Then they flew to Los Angeles. Mogamba was premiering there, too. But when they landed, Frank went to Fox to discuss that new picture with Marilyn Monroe, and Ava went to the MGM office to see what nonsensical movie they were going to stick her in next. However, Ava received unexpected good news. Joseph Mankiewicz wanted her for a movie that would be shooting in Rome in January. Mankiewicz was a writer-director, the younger brother of Herman, and an independent operator. He wasn't under contract to any studio. He'd written and directed A Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve, both of which had won Oscars. Humphrey Bogart had signed up for the leading role in the movie, which was called The Barefoot Contessa. On October 5th, Ava officially asked MGM for a temporary release from her contract so she could go make the movie. In the end, she telegrammed Nick Skank himself. I am desperately anxious to do this picture, she wrote to him. And Metro gave her what she wanted. She and Frank had arrived in L.A. together, but she attended the L.A. premiere of Magambo alone. She and Frank weren't speaking. Then Frank had an engagement in Vegas at the Sands Casino. Ava stayed in Los Angeles. He was drawing record-breaking crowds to the Copa Room at the Sands. But he was also crying to Luella Parsons, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I love her. Ava wasn't returning his calls. One night, Frank took an old friend to bed, a six-foot-tall showgirl from the Follies Berger Review in Boston. She lay next to him in the wee hours of the morning as he dialed Ava once again. This time of all times, she picked up. Frank told her that yes, he was in bed with another woman. If he was going to be constantly accused of infidelity when he was innocent, then he might as well enjoy the pleasure of being guilty. Ava hung up. In her memoir, she writes that she knew at that moment that they had reached a point of no return. MGM's chief hairstylist was a man named Sidney Gilaroff. He told Ava off for chewing gum the first time he met her when she was a 19-year-old. But he had become a friend to Ava through the years. He remembered that in late October of 1953, she showed up at his house one night unannounced. It was late, and Ava just stumbled out of her car and stood in his driveway crying. He ran out to her and found her so anguished that he believed she was almost to the point of a nervous breakdown. She wouldn't come inside with him, so he held her while she wept. Come in, for God's sake, let's sit and talk. She refused. Eventually, she told him to go inside and leave her alone. He reluctantly did so, but he couldn't go back to bed after that. So he sat in his front room in the dark and watched her through the window. For hours, he said, 
I watched her pace up and down in my garden, bathed in moonlight, lost in grief. Eventually, she just trudged off into the night. On October 29th, Howard Strickling at MGM issued the following press release. Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra stated today that having reluctantly exhausted every effort to reconcile their differences, they could find no mutual basis on which to continue their marriage. Both expressed deep regret and deep affection for each other. Their separation is final, and Miss Gardner will seek a divorce. Press release frames the decision as mutual, but it was definitely Ava who broke up with Frank. It took some time for Frank to realize that this was not at all like the feuds and separations of before. Two days afterwards, on Halloween, Frank hosted a Halloween party at the Sands. The newspapers carried a photo of Frank standing between two chorus girls, wearing a clown costume. You can't make this stuff up. It's Shakespearean, but it's true. What seems to have snapped him into reality was learning that Ava was planning to make a movie in Italy, with shooting scheduled to begin at the end of November. Ava had told the press that even if she didn't get the role as Barefoot Contessa, she would probably just go to Spain anyway. And Frank knew that that matador, the world's greatest living matador, was in Spain. He started to understand that Ava was making a plan to escape Hollywood itself, to make a new life in a new country far away. If not Italy, then Spain. If not Spain, then probably somewhere else. A new life without him. A fear of actually losing her started to spread within his heart like a forest fire. He tried calling Ava, but she was coldly intractable. She was done. It was over. He raised a fit when Hedda Hopper reported that Ava and Peter Lawford had been seen together at the Luau, a Chinese restaurant on Rodeo Drive. It was a totally innocent interaction. Peter Lawford's manager was there, and so was Bappy, Ava's sister. But Frank called Lawford and told him he was a dead man, and he was sending somebody to break his legs. Lawford's manager, Milton Evans, had to call and do damage control. Listen, Evans had told Frank, it wasn't Peter. I wanted to see Ava. It was my idea to go to the luau. I just wanted to meet Ava, is all. Frank seemed to believe Evans's explanation, but he still wouldn't talk to Peter Lawford for several years. Now Frank was in New York, preparing for a new radio show called To Be Perfectly Frank. But he was a mess, subsisting on coffee and pills instead of food. Ava had decamped to a rented house in Palm Springs, but Frank didn't know where she was. All he knew was she wasn't answering his calls. He pre-recorded some episodes of the radio show in anticipation of following Ava back to Europe to try to win her back. Out on the town, he was noticeably sullen. Soon, he stopped going out at all. Jimmy Van Heusen arranged a bevy of sex workers to keep Frank company, sometimes in twos and threes. 
He didn't show up for the premiere of To Be Perfectly Frank, which is supposed to be broadcasted live. The suits at NBC weren't happy, but he didn't care. He was chain-smoking and drinking in his pajamas in Van Heusen's apartment and watching television. On November 16th, the deal with MGM was finalized and Ava was officially cast in the Barefoot Contessa. She was loaned out to Mankiewicz for $200,000. Of this total, she would only be paid sixty grand. Metro would get the remaining money. It was well below her usual rate, but she took it. It was her ticket out. Frank read the news in the trade papers. He poured more Jack Daniels. He watched Lucy and Ricky arguing in black and white, the studio audience roaring with laughter, and he fell deeper into despair. By one account, it happened that same night, and by another, it happened on the 18th. But at some point in mid-November, Jimmy Van Heusen returned to his apartment to find a trail of blood on the floor. In the kitchen, Frank was lying there, his left wrist covered in blood. Jimmy, he said, I can't stop the bleeding. Frank was rushed to the hospital. The cover story was that he was suffering from exhaustion, which was not inaccurate. He hadn't really slept in weeks, and he'd lost 15 pounds in less than a month. He recovered, but as soon as he awoke from a drugged sleep, he was desperate to get out of the hospital. He had to go to California. He had to go see Ava. He was finally able to reach her on the phone. He told her he had to see her right away. She told him to stay put until he was healthy and promised him she wasn't going anywhere. But they both knew the score. Rumors gradually leaked into the press about the real reason Frank had been admitted to the hospital. Walter Winchell mentioned in his column that Frank had tried to end it all. And Jimmy Van Heusen had been so stressed out from taking care of Frank that he was actually starting to have chest pains. Jimmy told Frank he needed to start seeing a psychologist. He, Jimmy, couldn't do this anymore. And Frank agreed that this was a good idea. Then, on November 21st, he left the hospital against his doctor's orders and boarded a flight to Los Angeles. Newsmen found him at baggage claim and asked him questions about Ava. He would only growl, no comment. He and Ava planned to have dinner that night in Ava's old house in Nichols Canyon. Bappy and her husband Charlie were living there now, and they were both present. Ava didn't want Frank to misinterpret it as a date. When she met him at the door, she kissed him on the cheek. She noticed the bandage on his wrist. He told her it was nothing, downplayed it, an accident. Ava's hand shook as she held her cigarette. She was nervous. She had worried that the old love for him would come roaring back when she saw him, but was relieved when it didn't. They ate dinner, the four of them, and Frank watched Ava closely. Like many people with a disorganized attachment style, Frank was a hypersensitive person, attuned to the energy in a room whether he wanted to be or not. 
He had always watched Ava's every move super closely, looking for clues as to whether she was going to love him or abandon him. Ava was cool to him that night. As she smiled at him, her thoughts seemed far away. She was leaving him. He knew it now, for sure. Frank spent Thanksgiving with Nancy and the kids. Ava flew to Rome on Thanksgiving morning, the 26th. As she boarded the plane, she waved to the cameras with her left hand. She was no longer wearing her wedding ring. Thanks for listening to Lovers Forever. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Amber Nelson, with a special appearance from Muffin the Cat. Sorry if you hear him purring. All the music is from Epidemic Sound. The logo was designed by Abby Scheel. We're distributed by Buzzsprout. If you like Lovers Forever, please follow, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, and tell your friends about it. You can find us online at Lovers Forever Podcast on Instagram.